As a thankful recipient of many, many skincare products over the years, I've learned to discern what is naturally actually activating my skin to rebalance and recalibrate on its own. That's what your skin is meant to be doing, and it keeps getting disrupted by all these choices that we make. So, when the founder and creator of Herbal Face Food reached out to me, I was all ears. I didn't know why at first. It turns out that Herbal Face Food is the most potent antioxidant skincare line on the market today, period. The raw plant ingredients in each of their products are never processed, never manipulated with synthetics or emulsifiers. These anti-aging botanicals are combined with the most precious plant concentrates, and they have changed my skin. Here's how. I'm going to talk about two of the products, the Herbal Face Food Serums and the Cream. The serums contain powerful phytoenzymes and antioxidants. These are activated and infused into your tissues. They hydrate and increase the resiliency of your skin, and they feel like they're plumping up your face. I use Serum 1 daily. I use Serum 2 when I'm tired and I need extra firming for my skin. And I use the X, which is also known as the Cure, for a small patch of rosacea that flares up every now and again, which you cannot see because of these products. When you feed your skin with herbal face food, you will feel real live ingredients at work. An activating flush, an invigorating tingle, some warmth, all of these are evidence of your skin healing at the cellular level and years of damage reversing. The cream is the most potent moisturizer I've ever tried, and I've tried them all. I live in the high desert. This cream contains 102 of the world's most powerful anti-aging botanicals and is also the world's first and only edible SPF <laughs> with a protection rating of SPF 50+. Plus. And this is accomplished 100% by plant power. And you can expect intense hydration, soothing for your tired skin. You can expect to see inflammation calmed and rebuilding of elasticity so your complexion looks and feels more smooth, and more radiant. Herbal face food is not plant-based. It's plant-powered. It has the highest rating on the ORAC anti-aging scale. ORAC means oxygen radical absorbance capacity. I never knew what that meant before. Highest, over 30 million on that scale. By contrast, vitamin C in skincare rates under 100,000. Herbal face food is using all post-consumer recycled materials and packaging. They use glass and aluminum, which is super easy to recycle as well. The products and packaging are 99% free of plastics. They contain no ingredients that involve the destruction or harm of any plant, animal, or marine life. These are 100% plants only, these products. These active concentrates are coming from the seeds, the fruits, the leaves, or the flowers of the plants only. These products have been a complete revolution for me. I know that you will love the way your skin looks and feels after using it even for just a day or two. And the best part is that Herbal Face Food has offered us, you, my community, a code to receive 20% off forever, ever. The code is capital E-L-E-N-A 20. Once again, that's my name in all caps, ELENA2020. The site is herbalfacefood.com. The code is all caps ELENA20. It's not just your first purchase, it's any purchase. You will love these products, and I am so grateful 
herbal face food for the change that you have made in my life. Thank you. Welcome to the Practice You podcast. My name is Elena Brower. Let's dive into today's conversation regarding life's myriad transitions and how we refine our responses in our relationships, our wellness, our households, our work, and in our practices. You are invited to learn and love and listen with me. Welcome to Practice You. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm having a little bit of hero worship at the moment, and I want to introduce you to my next guest in a way that feels grounded. This is someone whom I've read for a couple of years now, who is truly a hero to me in the most um, earthbound sense of the word, Osho Zenju Earthlin. Marceline Manuel is a poet, an author, an ordained Zen priest and medicine woman of the drum. She was born in Los Angeles. She's the middle daughter of Lawrence Manuel Jr. and Alvesta Pierre Manuel, who both migrated from rural Louisiana. Zenju Osho was raised in Los Angeles with her older and younger sisters, and as a child, she was referred to by the name her mother gave her, Earthlin. Her middle name, Marceline, was her grandmother's name, and Zenju is a Dharma name. Osho is a title meaning Zen teacher. She is the Dharma heir of Buddha and the late Zenkai Blanche Hartman, who is literally one of my top five favorite writers of all time. She's in the Shunryu Suzuki Roshi lineage through the San Francisco Zen Center. She served as Shuso, which basically means head student, along with Kiku Christina Linhe Roshi. And her Dharma transmission was completed by Osho Shosan Victoria Austin. Prior to entering Zen Buddhism, Zenju practiced in the Nichiren Soka Gakkai tradition for 15 years, and she entered Zen in 2001 and began again as a beginner on this path. What's most important, though, is that Zenju's practice is influenced heavily by Native American and African indigenous traditions. She participated in ceremony with Ifa diviners from Dahomey, Africa. She briefly studied Yoruba. She was raised in the Church of Christ, where she was an avid reader of the Bible and adored the true mystic teachings on Christ's path well into her adulthood. She also holds, I'm almost there, this is so important to know all of these things for, my, for our listener, she also holds a PhD, and she formerly worked for decades as a social science researcher, development director for nonprofit orgs, and those serving women and girls, cultural arts, and mental health. So many of my friends will be just tickled to listen to this episode, and I want to thank you for being here. I'm bowing deeply. Thank you. Yes. Okay, so in front of me on the floor is Zenkai Blanche's book, Seeds for a Boundless Life. And if you're listening to us right now, our listener, Seeds for a Boundless Life is a really good place to start. Zenkai Blanche Hartman, and this is... Osho Zenju's teacher. Um, but two books of yours have blown my heart open and have literally as though 
taking me by the back of my neck like a puppy, placed me squarely on the path and put me into the Zendo at Upaya down the road. Your books, The Deepest Peace, and then following shortly thereafter, that was really the one that did it. You, you did me in. But then shortly thereafter, it was The Shamanic Bones of Zen, which came out last year, this earlier this year. First of all, the importance that you place on ritual and ceremony in the context of Zen practice is by far, I think, the most important book I've read this year for my own personal uh, exploration. And I would like to start with a question about your own journey. You were running yourself ragged as the sort of support system for a couple of nonprofits for a long time. You stepped off the path. How did that happen? Um, I think I was more like pushed off the path. I'm always pushed. Thank, mm. thank goodness. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Um, I think all the gateways, all the thresholds, whichever word you want to use, have been presented and I get pushed in. But, you know, there's that little opportunity you can like run back out the door, right? Yes. But I think what sucks me in is the curiosity. And um, I'm very much a uh, Black Panther. (laughs) We need you. Yeah, and more than nine lives. And so I was curious. I went in to look. And because of that, I could continue walking, you know, in the the meadow of, of Buddhism, period. And uh, starting with Nishran tradition and then moving into uh, Soto Zen and um, not knowing what either one of them were, not interested in Buddha, not interested in Buddhism, but just uh, interested in um, healing and uh, transformation and peace. And I think that's why the ancestors pushed me through this gateway. Thank you. I'm going to bring us into your book, The Deepest Peace, on page 55. Mm -hmm. This particular section is called uh, The Naked Nothing, Joy and Just Sitting. And we happened to finish uh, the fall practice period recently, and it was all about shikantaza, which is the Japanese word for just sitting. I know personally several of my listeners who need to hear the following passage many, many times. You will love hearing this and you will understand why it is that I finally can sit for two hours a day, one hour at a time. Oh, you must love to sit, says the student. I nod again. Quote, sitting with silence, listening, is my way, my life. It has nothing to do with Zen, nothing to do with Buddhism. It has nothing to do with pleasure or joy. It has everything to do with being awake to this life and how I come awake. Being in the great awareness of the earth brings peace. And when I read that, I just, that was kind of the seal for me. You know, I knew that it would be fine. Everything would be fine and the world would be fine if I stepped out for an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening and just sat. I want to thank you for this book because there are so many ways in which, and I'll, I'll read a couple more passages as we go on, but I want to go to my next question because you really are a poet. (laughs) You truly are in every sense of the word. And in fact, I'm quoting you a super short quote in my upcoming book of poetry that's coming out next year. 
It's called Softening Time. And the quote from you reads, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, the need of the poet is not to be heard. The need of the poet is to listen. I wonder if you could talk a little bit to us about uh, your sort of discovery of poetry. I remember mine very well and how this capacity arrived. Um, so again, it was one of those gateways I was pushed into. Pushed through, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I don't think I had any choice in this life. <laughs> Personally, when I sit back, I go, okay, I just came totally as a, uh, you know, something, a conduit or an entity or vehicle by which someone or something or something of this earth is using. And I think we're all in that way, but I recognize mine very clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, So when I was in elementary school, I would never do the book reports. Of course. uh, Because I was very lazy. I didn't like the books, of course, you know. (laughs) And I was like, okay, I can't read all of this. It's too many words. So finally, one of my teachers, and I think she was either the fifth grade teacher or the sixth grade. And she said, uh, here, she had me a book of poetry. I believe it was Emily Dickinson. And I don't remember completely. I just remember like, what poetry? What is it? And Mm -hmm. she handed it to me. I took it home. And it was the first time I... um, actually read a book from cover to cover (laughs) and I felt so successful and I understood all the poems and I did a book report on that book so that began the journey like you could write like this like it's okay to just write the essence of everything of course those weren't my words as a child but like I could do this I could do this without this way I don't have to talk all the time about everything I don't have to write in detail and so I started doing it started trying it out writing my own poetry and it was so natural I didn't really have to work at it at all it was very and um, I wrote and wrote all the way when I was in high school I was an English lit major Mm. And um, I didn't know what I had signed up to be that kind of a major, but it was very eye-opening. I ended up writing an ode to Martin Luther King, and that was interesting in an old English. You know? Do you have that? I don't have it. <gasps> I know it's lost, lost in yeah. the world. And there was a book, and I think they did put it in that book. I've never gone to search it out. They made a book of poetry of all the students. Mm-hmm. And they, all the students were saying, you're in the book, you're in the book. I didn't care because I didn't care about publishing. So I never even got a copy or they gave me one and I tossed it or something. Of and, <laughs> when you moved, the next time you moved, it was in the trash. I think it just ended up in the trash, you know, pretty mm-hmm. much. And all of my poetry, because I didn't see it as what people see poetry as. To me, it was just my voice and I was speaking and it was coming out on a piece of paper. And so after a while, it didn't matter that uh, those words existed or not. I already took the act of poeting, as you can say. (laughs) I did it and it was done. So that was, you know, how it went. And I continued to write poetry. And I think deep down wanted to be a poet, like known as a poet. And I, you know, did not succeed in that. I think because, you know, I had to grow up. I had to mature. I had to season and those kinds of things. And that's what Zen offered. Buddhism offered that growing up and that seasoning, um, letting go. He had to let go of a lot to be a poet. 
Wow. Yeah, you can't be holding on to any kind of uh, ideologies and things like that. That can't be in your um, mind, yeah. On page uh, 94 of The Deepest Peace, I'm going to regale our listener with an example of this, um, letting go and finding the words, a flash of light in the dark plains, an utterance without a word, a sudden appearance of a friend at the door, explaining magic strips the ocean of its waves. Ah, explaining magic strips the ocean of its waves. Skin hot in the winter snow, mind without thought, no ears needed to hear. Magic? Only response, sit still, be drenched, hands out, eyes open, greeting what is there. Woman, you just make me cry every time I read you. It just makes me cry. Going back, page 84, Poetic Solitude, you write about the poetic justice of Phyllis Wheatley. Our listener needs to know who this is. It was an evening when you were writing this piece. A new moon was causing you to pause and read Phyllis Wheatley, who's an 18th century poet. You write, of course she would present herself during a new moon that is begging me to write. Removed at the age of seven from West Africa, bought and sold, Phyllis had to be a moon child. Under the moon, when others were asleep, her enslavement erupted into poetry. Her writing was her underground path to freedom. Her words, the voice of the earth. Wheatley put ink to paper for solitude. Quote, and this is Phyllis Wheatley's words. Soon as the sun forsook the eastern main, the peeling thunder shook the heavenly plain. Majestic grandeur from the zephyr's wing Exhales the incense of the blooming spring. Soft pearl the streams, the birds renew their notes, and through the air their mingled music floats. You continue. She breathes into the chaos of a world weighed down with slavery. Still she attends to the experience of spring, to thunder, the wings of a zephyr. The birds renew their notes from their morning songs. No one knew that her life would be a conduit of radiance that would last for centuries as ancient poetry. I just, um, I'm going to skip the next paragraph and I just want to really focus on this one line. Who will show up in an inner monastery for poetic solitude? Who will show up in an inner monastery for poetic solitude? It's so rare that somebody will show up like that. Mm. Nobody's watching. Nobody cares. Nobody knows. But can I show up in an inner monastery? I'm 52 now. You know, we don't know each other. And that has been the work of the last three years to show up in that monastery. Mm -hmm. So thank you for that because I didn't have words for it. Yeah. Now I do. Mm -hmm. The Shamanic Bones of Zen is the most recent, and I know you have another book coming out, and I can't wait to devour it. I'm, I'm online. Um, this is an important book, though. I spent the last three years basically receiving the Dharma via Zoom. Mm-hmm. I feel no lack 
in the transmissions that I've received. And in walking into the Zendo for the very first time this fall, I felt like I'd been there for months and I'd never been there before. But I'm pointing out on this page 32 in uh, Rattling the Bones, speaking of the shamanic bones of Zen, even in context, it would be overwhelming for teachers to first explain the reasons for tools and incantations before every ritual or ceremony. Rituals and ceremonies are to be lived. Your own bones must be rattled. It would be a waste of time to give detail to something you cannot understand with the mind. So this is really important because there are so many rituals and ceremonies and chants and mantras and gasho and all the, you know, every way that you have to place your hands at certain moments. I've never learned it via words. I've learned it from reading in the precepts preparation that I have, which is a giant book of so many words. And I've learned it just from being there and from watching on the Zoom. Okay. But your whole point of this book is to recognize the parallels and the merging of the perpendicularity and the adjacency of shamanism and Zen. You got a lot of flack for it, I'm sure. And you mentioned some of the flack in the book, but I'm sure it was worse than, than what you've written. And I would love to hear about how you got the courage <laughs> To bring this whole conversation to the fore, in a book, no less, and to read um, Roshi Joan, who's my teacher, writes, this extraordinary book, rich in content and feeling, is a revelation on Buddhism's secret life source and the ineffable power of ritual. Osho Zenju Earthland Manuel's gift to practitioners is to return all of us to the great beauty of practice and the mystery of ceremony through the shining lens of the ancient practice of shamanism. It's so scandalous. <laughs> Where did you get the courage? Well, you know, that one anecdote that I give where the teacher was concerned that I was calling uh, Buddha a shaman. Yes. It's actually the only incident that I Is had. it? <gasps> yeah. Oh, that's great. Okay, the majority good. of good, teachers, good. which was shocking to me, were very much in alignment. Matter of fact, the whole page of Zen teachers who endorsed the book, it was left out of the book. There's a whole wow. page of praise from Alan Sanaki, Abbott of wow. Zen Center, Norman Fisher, mm -hmm. and um, uh, Tygen Layton, who's a Buddhist scholar and teacher. Yep, and definitely. so all of them endorsed that this book when their endorsement did not show up. I almost died on the day I got the book. I was like, ugh. I'm actually dying over that because all those people are people with whom I've studied. And Right. It was important. Wow. I was yeah. like, I left that opposite. I mean, they had Joan, but, you know, the other teachers that, you know, they spent time reading. And Tygen spent a lot of time. We talked a lot about what I was writing and um, it's just, it's nothing new. It's new in the secular world, but in the academic world, they've been writing books about, you know, the shamanic bones of Zen, you right. know. The daily devotion to things unseen. Mm -hmm. I've highlighted a lot. The whole book is basically dog-eared almost every other page. Um, I'll read a couple of things. What would happen if we were to treat Buddhism as the shamanic practice that it is? I believe the way the practice is transmitted might be different. 
rather than create what we think is peace, harmony, oneness, and the like, we would relate to the tradition as a path in which to experience the absolute truths of life. That's what I've experienced. When I picked up your book, I just was out of my mind. Like, okay, now I understand. Luckily, I didn't have to wait a decade or two to read these words. Mm-hmm. But another important passage, a saying in Zen community, as you write, uh, is Zazen is good for nothing, which means, I love this, you're not looking to gain anything. However, you are looking, you are seeing deep into life. You are taking on a seeing practice to discern, or can I say divine life. This is done to bring forth wisdom as a way to attend to suffering personally and collectively. That really wraps it all up in a nice bow, but there's so much more. You know, there is a certain exclusion of the quote-unquote magic from Buddhism in the Zen tradition, especially the Soto Zen with which you and I study and sit. It could seem from the outside quite rigid. I feel the magic, but that's because I have Roshi Joan as my teacher. I have you as my teacher. I have Tigan Dan as my teacher, Kathy Fisher, you know, Zenkai Blanche through her words in her book. These are all women, uh, for, except for Tigan Dan, of course, who have, you know, really steeped themselves deeply in the rituals and ceremonies. And therefore, the sort of juice, I don't want to use that word, but that's what I'm feeling, comes through in the transmission of the Dharma. I think what you're doing and how you're sharing it is the most important teaching of my young life. Mm. I'm glad to hear that. And you do know that the Seeds for a Balanced Life, I put that book together too for Black. <gasps> yeah. Oh, and the chills. Oh, yeah, she had God. nothing to do with it really. Yeah, she didn't. You did. Yeah, she was in the, getting close to, to the dying process. And so I um, got all her works as much as I could get. And so, you know, she didn't really get a chance to read the book. Victoria Austin read some of it to her. You know, she saw it. There's a picture I have of her in her bed at the um, nursing facility, her smiling with her book, and she's holding her book. And this is what she wanted really badly. And um, somehow I got chosen (laughs) to put this together. And uh, it was a wonderful transmission. This is how she transmitted to me was listening, you know, to all these talks all at once, you know, and studying her words and her work. And she truly, truly, truly is a disciple of Shunru Suzuki Roshi. Yes. And, And that is the way it used to be. We spoke of what our teacher spoke of and nothing else. And books were written by the students, just as I did. Uh, saying that happened with, you know, Shunru Suzuki Roshi with, you know, Beginner's Mind, Mm. that the student writes the book so that the ego of the teacher is not within the book. So that kind of practice has kind of gone away. I, of course, I've jumped, wrote my own books, but um, that is my vocation. I am a writer. You know, I was an author before I entered um, Mm. Buddhism. And um, like some people are other things, doctors, lawyers, I'm a writer. So it was natural for me to write my experiences. And it was very easy for me to pull together this book because I had experience in publishing, you know, and getting things published. And so, yes, 
you know, I went to read somewhere. I don't know where it was. And they said, well, what do you have to do with the book? <laughs> and I said, everything. Yeah, I said it wouldn't exist because she is actually dying. So she didn't jump up and write a book. <laughs> remember? <laughs> so she was not here for that. Uh, but I'm so happy she has the book. I got a big thumbs up. From her family, her daughters, especially her daughters, consider me one of the daughters of Blanche. And so the three of us were in the hallway and they were just crying. You know, this was after Blanche died. And and they told me that they could hear her voice. And the family was so happy that I had written this book because they could hear her, you know, by reading it. And that just said everything, you know, Mm -hmm. to me. You know, it's it's been a major pivot point, her book. Yeah. It's very profound in its simplicity. That's who she was. And uh, yeah, I think it's a wonderful book. I love it myself. (laughs) I'm going to read from it, if I may. Sure. Yes. Uh, Page 80, bottom. What is this intimacy? It begins with yourself becoming completely intimate with yourself. Through this intimacy with yourself, the possibility of being intimate with another arises. Because he was so intimate with himself, Suzuki Roshi could meet me completely when I bowed to him and jump up and bow back to me before I even knew it. When I was remembering one such moment, I had this deep pain, wondering, will I ever be able to meet anyone as completely as he meets me? (sighs) She goes on to say, please stay close to your breath. Stay close to just this one As it is, you will find everything you need right here in this moment. Mm -hmm. There's so much in here. Our listener, like, I'm sorry to give you three books to buy. (laughs) I'm really sorry. But there are three books to buy. I'm going to say again, Zenkai Blanche Hartman, who is uh, Zenju Earthland's teacher. Her book is called Seeds for a Boundless Life. Zenju Earthland's books, The Deepest Peace, The Shamanic Bones of Zen. There are other books. Uh, Sanctuary is one of them that's so beautiful. The Oh, yeah, Opening to Darkness is the next one. Yikes. I'm so excited. I could burst. Burst. When is this coming out? Um, it comes out on March 21st, 2023. 2023. Can you believe yeah. it's 2023? Yeah. So there'll be the audio. You'll want to get the audio on this one. I usually don't push audio books. But this one is audio. You'll want it for the uh, guided meditations in the back of the book. Oh, God. My whole body just melted again. And you got Resma Menachem to give you a quote. Opening to darkness is beautiful, wise, magical, earthly, and utterly necessary for our time. Thank you. Thank you, Element, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. We have been personally using Element for well over a year. Element is spelled L-M-N-T. Elemental electrolyte salts that have completely changed the game around my house. Every night before bed, James and I split a packet. Helps us sleep, helps us get good solid rest, and helps combat fatigue, muscle pain, fogginess, irritability even. Did you know that your cells need electrolytes for optimal function? And if you're struggling with any of those things, you might just be deficient in electrolytes. 
They facilitate hundreds of cellular functions in your body, including nerves, hormone regulation, nutrient absorption, fluid balance. Element contains 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, and 60 milligrams of magnesium. No artificial anything in here, no sugar, no nothing. My favorite flavors, as I said, orange watermelon and the chocolate caramel in hot water is just incredible. Element comes in tiny single-serving packets you can carry with you wherever you go. They're great on planes as well. With my link, you get a free sample pack with any order so that you can try all the flavors. And that link is drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. The spelling is D-R-I-N-K-L-M-N-T dot com forward slash Elena. Thank you. Thank you so much again, Element. Again, the link, drinkelement.com forward slash Elena. Okay, the last couple of things that I thought it might be nice to address are still in the shamanic bones of Zen. I have uh, marked page 107, Chanting Spells. Mm-hmm. There's a Chinese stone inscription that you quote in the front of James Nestor's book, Breath, which I loved and found very helpful to myself in terms of breathing with your mouth closed and why and how and how we've evolved because we no longer eat raw meat to smaller jaw, all the things and how hard it is for us to just get oxygenated now. But the inscription is, in transporting the breath, the inhalation must be full. So, listener, take a big, deep breath. When it is full, it has big capacity. When it has big capacity, it can be extended. And when it is extended, it can penetrate downward. We're still talking about a breath. When it penetrates downward, it will become calmly settled. When it is calmly settled, it will be strong and firm. When it is strong and firm, it will germinate. And when it germinates, it will grow. When it grows, it will retreat upward. When it retreats upward, it will reach the top of the head. The secret power of providence moves above. The secret power of the earth moves below. He who follows this will live. He who acts against this will die. Like, okay, if anyone needs a conversation about where the Hara is and how to access it, it's that passage right there. The soft belly of the Hara, chi or chi, however you say it, that your life energy is all about that passage. Listen to it again if you want to, just back up. The ritual of Zazen is what I would like to talk about next from this book. And you talk about it a fair amount, but I want to hear in your words. Let's say our listener is someone who is really struggling to just get a practice together at all. They've spent, I don't know, 10, 15 years studying yoga. They have a bunch of different possible meditation practices. There's some guided meditations over here. There's the one they did on that retreat that they loved. They can't really remember. And then there's Zazen which has no words, no mantras, no things to do. Talk to our listener about the practice and the purpose of Zazen. So I'm glad you talked about the various ways in which we gather medicine from uh, many traditions. Mm. And then you enter this place of nothingness of Zazen. And Zazen is a portal. It is a portal for wisdom. And in that portal, you yourself 
develop that wisdom that you've been running around gathering and you learn how to use your medicine and your wisdom. Um, that's my experience of Zazen. And so the stillness and what arises from the silence, first what arises will be what's in your mind, of mm-hmm. course, for a long time. And, you know, maybe not. Maybe you're very special. It could go that way for you. But I feel like it takes a while to sit in the silence, in the stillness, until you actually hear something that's different than what you've read, uh, different than what someone has taught you, but you know it to be the absolute truth. And when I say true, it is aligned with nature and the earth. And so that is um, what I experienced in Zazen over the many years. Also in chanting. Yes, uh, please. You know, chanting gives you the rhythm that goes along with that stillness and silence. So um, someone told me once, well, there's no drums in Zazen. I said, oh, yes, there is. There's so much rhythm in the chanting. And then there's the bell. The bell is a metal drum. And then there's the makugyo, which is a wooden drum. And then sometimes a taiko drum. So there's always a drum, I think, in every uh, spiritual or religious practice. And this is because all of these uh, paths and traditions have an indigenous bone that the indigenous bone is the voice of the drum, really, actually. And then from that, there's the the, uh, practice is created. So even in Christianity, you know, it's the same thing, but it's gotten lost and turned into uh, a tool, you know, to use. So you could do that with Buddhism as well. You could turn it into a tool. And uh, once you turn it into a tool and concretize it into something like a hammer, (laughs) there's uh, only one use for it, and that is to hammer the nail. But if you keep it open and not have it as a tool, but have it as a path, as a wandering, as a place to be, as a portal, then anything can come through and you can do more than hammer a nail, (laughs) you know, with the tool you're doing, whatever you're doing with the practice to make it fit for you. I'm on page 130. It's sort of in pursuit of what you've just said and follows it well. We talk about rohatsu. We talk about the sort of celebration and initiation rituals in this section. And on the top of 130, we talk about how on one of the memorial days for Suzuki Roshi, priests will talk to his spirit. They will tell him of their love They will tell him how things are going. And you remark that speaking to the ancestors in such a way is part of many earth-based practices in which I include Zen and other Buddhist traditions. Thank you for that, because I find myself when I'm home alone pretty often telling my mom, who passed away seven years ago, exactly how things are going and asking for help. (laughs) And it makes perfect sense to me that the priests would talk to Suzuki Roshi and let him know of their love and how things are going. And I feel so strongly that we should be talking about this more, like, go ahead and talk to your people, talk to your ancestors, if you're listening to us right now. Go ahead, ask some questions, tell them how things are going. You can hear them. Don't doubt it for one moment, that their voice is audible in your soul. Anyway, I just want to say thank you for that. Anything else to add to that? Yeah, is if just listening to yourself, that is listening to the ancestors because we are them. 
They're not somewhere else. They're right here inside us. We are them. We have their hands. We have their eyes. We have their voices. We have mm-hmm. everything. They gave us everything. And then ancestors can be anything that was here before you came to this earth. So it can be a tree. It can be the sun, the moon. All these things were here. All the medicine was here. Everything was here for you, the food. So it's not like you came in with all of this, you know, and took care of yourself. So everything is from the ancestors. And I have a lot of people struggle with this ancestor practice and idea, especially within Zen and our Buddhism. And I was asked, you know, by a young man. And he said, well, what do you mean by ancestors? I don't understand And this young man was going to be a teacher of Buddhism. And I almost like fell out when he said it. It's like, what do you think you're doing in my mind? You know? And so then I said, well, the greatest ancestor, if you are going to be a teacher of Buddhism or call yourself a teacher, then you are teaching the teachings of one of the biggest ancestors of all. And that's Buddha. You know, and he looked and I said, so if you're not speaking from that, then you're speaking from your own mind and your own, you know, habits and your own whatever. And that's okay too. People sometimes have something to teach from there. However, if you want a broader, more enlightened and wider, more expansive teaching, you would um, move towards sages and prophets. They don't have to be men either. And they don't have to be any gender really, but you can hear I mean, a child can also speak wisdom sometimes, <laughs> like they might not know that's what they're saying, but it happens. So yeah. that was interesting. And we chant, you know, to all the ancestors of the practice all the time, because it wouldn't be here. We wouldn't even be talking. You and I wouldn't be talking if it wasn't for the spiritual ancestors. And if it wasn't for our own um, blood ancestors, whether we love them or not, it's not, they're still our ancestors <laughs> and um, we can't change it. <laughs> and so this moment right here, this moment that we are here together is uh, because of all these people, like thousands of people brought us to this moment. Oh, thank you for that. My listener, our listener, I have to apologize for the next question. It's very selfish. And it might not matter to you, so just bear with it. I'm going to take the precepts in March, right around the time when your book comes out. With Roshi Joan, I've sewed my Roxu. I have the giant lineage chart on the floor next to me, and I'm working on that right now. I've never felt more on purpose in my life. And you talk in this book, 131 onward, about the ceremony of taking the vows. And I would love to hear your um, consideration of what it means to take the vows. Mm-hmm. I feel um, the Jukai, especially Jukai, which is a vow, the initiation, lay initiation ceremony, your first set of vow taking, is definitely the most powerful. <laughs> ceremony one could take, even if you don't want to be a Buddhist or call yourself one, to enter this gateway is to enter uh, freedom. And I've seen it in people's faces. It's not something I've heard written, read, written down or thought of myself. I have actually experienced it in the first Jukai I led. And um, with my students, that's when I realized that, oh, this is why I have this brown robe that I'm Dharma transmitted, and that is to stand at the gateway of freedom for anyone. 
anyone who wants to have that feeling, that experience, and make that vow to live in a, a particular way, I would love to be at the gateway for that person. And, um, and for those people, anybody who wants to do that. And I do offer that to people who don't necessarily sit with me, you know, but they find me somehow. And I feel that it's important to enter this gateway. You get a new name. And what I tell my students is this new name that I'm giving you, uh, Dharma name, is a name of a life that has not been oppressed. It has not experienced oppression. It's your freedom name. It's your name of liberation. And to walk with it in that way. And they don't have to take on that name. They can keep it. I think they can go on. Some of them I don't think they should do. Hold, you know, Mm -hmm. go with the name. It depends on who they are. But that name is still there, still for them. And I really work hard on those names. First, I sit with the students nine months. And then I um, have a tea with their friends and family and talk about the person. The person just has to sit there being quiet, drinking their tea and their friends and family, you know, will uh, talk about them based on the questions that are asked. This is a process created by Shosan Victoria Austin. It's nothing but tears and heart in this ceremony. And um, it's amazing. And people, they don't just talk willy nilly about somebody. It's mostly related to, you know, when you see nature, what in nature makes you think of so-and-so? If this person were fully liberated, what would it look like? You know, all these kinds of things. And so these questions are asked, and then I go and dream the name. Mm. And then you get the dreamed up name <laughs> uh, when the ceremony starts and uh, it begins because your name comes out very early in the way we have the ceremony laid out. And the friends and family feel a part of that name because they were at the tea, right? And they don't get to hear the name until the ceremony. So they're like, sometimes they're very surprised how it it comes out. It's a way of bringing in divination and intuition and insight, like in a different way than just, you know, picking a name that, oh, this sounds good because it might not be good, you know, for the person to walk in terms of freedom. Yeah. In terms of uh, liberation. Yeah. The chilling part is the name that has not been oppressed for me. You were born on my grandmother's birthday, my grandmother, Belle, so important to me. My first real boyfriend's mom, also, same birthday. Uh, On page 141, going into um, 142, you talk about the chant called The Gate of Sweet Dew. I think it's important for our listener to check that one out, if you can, The Gate of Sweet Dew. It's part of the Zen ceremony of Seijiki. Am I saying that correctly? Mm-hmm. That's right. Which is shamanic to the core, you write. One of the most important ceremonies of the year, it honors the ancestors and the spirit world. It is the ancestors and the spirit world. And the chant goes like this. Giving rise to the awakened mind, we unconditionally offer up a bowl of pure food to all the hungry ghosts in every land to the farthest reaches of vast emptiness in the ten directions, including every atom throughout the entire Dharma realm. We invite all our departed ancestors going back to ancient times 
the spirits dwelling in mountains, rivers, and earth, as well as rough demonic spirits from the untamed wilderness to come and gather here. Now, with deep sympathy, we offer food to all of you, sincerely hoping that you will each accept this food and turn it over, making offerings to Buddhas, sages, and all sentient beings throughout the vast emptiness of the universe, so that you and all the many sentient beings will be satisfied. It goes on. It's just so powerful. I wept and highlighted the entire verse. There are tears, like the page has little wrinkles from my tears. But this, to our listener, this just gives you a slight idea of the importance of this book. Um, as Zenju Earthland ends this book, she writes, We don't know who or what we are, why we are here, and where we are going. Zen rituals and ceremonies can act as a mirror in the dark unknown of the present and in the light of the ancient past. Is there a willingness to look in the mirror and see a reflection of ourselves without any notions of Zen or Zen practice? Can we go through the flesh of the tradition as presented and consider the bones? The teachings received in talks and books are a reflection of the truth, but not the truth itself. To engage the body and mind in ritual and ceremony will reveal the soul and spirit of your own life. And there you just very properly leave us at the door, at the portal, like... Go, please go. Then you give us a little kick in the ass. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just a little one. Yeah. Um, I would love to hear, lastly, about your process of moving. We have a lot of writers who listen to this podcast. And your process of moving into a new project, the opening to darkness. The subtext, by the way, our listener is eight gateways for being with the absence of light in unsettling times. How do you start a book project? What happens? Is it the same as the Black Angel Oracle cards where Zenju's dream that she had, literally a dream that she had back in the day, it was her first publishing project and it led to so many other things. How do you start a project like this one? So there are never projects until they go to the publisher to me. <laughs> mm. The publisher sees them as projects. And that always scares me because I'm not really good at projects. But <laughs> how funny. That is <laughs> but I'm very good at listening. And um, my listening in the silence and witnessing and observing. So I have always been a child of exploration and I explore the nature of life. And some people explore space, but I explore the nature of life. It's just fascinating to me. And it always has been since I was a child. And I think that that's why religion and spirituality were very dear to me, even as a child. So the work that I feel comes through me. So things happen at the same time. They're not my plan. Like when I was doing my teacher's books in Kay Blanche Hartman's book, uh, Seeds for a Boundless Life, I was also doing the uh, way of tenderness, which we haven't mentioned, the way of tenderness, yeah, awakening through race, sexuality and gender. So those were happening at the same time, which wow. was fascinating to be receiving all of this transmission from Zenke Blanche Hartman. And I'm writing about my own um, experience of awakening 
using race, sexuality, and gender. So the book is not about those things. It's about awakening. But I was talking about it, and it was just massaging themselves, these two books together, and then they came into being. And so the deepest piece was already being written inside me. They're usually already being written inside my heart and my body and soul. And um, Parallax called and said, hey, you know, would you like to write a book for us? And I was like, oh, oh, no. And I said, wait a minute. Oh, I've been writing all this poetry. But I was very afraid that when they saw it, they would go, "Mm, this is not poetry. Because that's the project part, right? (laughs) It has to be right, perfect. It has to fit into these boxes. It has to be this. It has to be that. And I don't know what it has to be, right? Really, I don't know. I don't have an MFA. I was going to get one, (laughs) but I didn't do it. Life had other plans. I didn't. Yeah, it just didn't happen. And so these books are uh, all the time. I feel like my name shouldn't go on them. I think I've seen a couple of books called anonymous. And I had an idea to do that with the Oracle as well, to be anonymous and not to be the face of it, because it's work that's coming through me that I feel I'd like to share. So I was just saying to other people, none of my books tell you how to live. None of them. I will never do that. How to live, because I don't know how to live. But I will share with you what I've explored and what has come to me about living. And that's what these books are about. That's it. I'm, I always think I'm not an author. <laughs> Got it. And I read a lot of your writing, and um, it was important for a lot of the women of color who found you because of the Black Angel Oracle deck to be empowered by the presence of someone who looked like them putting this through. Right. Listening and producing it. Right. Um, yeah. And at a wide level, because many, I ask people to go forth and name to me any black uh, spiritual teachers with the big name, name any women, you know, they bear, you can just say Pema, you know, Pema Children. Pema, you can say Reverend Angel. Uh-huh, but I'm talking about mass. Back then. Yeah. Even now, massive, because um, I've been interviewing people, I say, can you name spiritual teachers like an Eckhart Tolle, like in that way, that's so huge, that's crossed the boundary of religion and spirituality. And into the world in the way that people consider that person a major spiritual teacher. Now, I mean, Angel might be. I'm just saying that. But most people do not. No, broadly known, like a household name. Yeah, not supported, not seen, Black women not being seen as spiritual teachers. Wow. I've had that conversation with uh, even Reverend Angel. You know, our work is out there. We work as hard. But Mm -hmm. there is a ceiling. You know, we're definitely widespread among Buddhist circles and then a few others, you know, like the universities call me all the time. You know, so my books are in the university. I think the way of tenderness is that one in the university realm. I want to talk about that one for a minute, actually, if I could. Um, This is really a telling of your experiences with Buddhism and how that has related to race, sexuality gender. And when we talk about Buddhism for our listener, and then I really want you to talk about this, what we're sort of referencing are the philosophies of emptiness, Mm -hmm. impermanence. Talk to our listener a little bit, if you don't mind, on the core of this book and why it's so important for folks to read it, The Way of Tenderness. 
So this book, I think, has been misinterpreted by those who haven't read it because <laughs> they see the word race on it. But it's usually I, how it goes. Yeah, it's not about race. It's not about sexuality. It's not about gender. The most important um, word on that title is awakening through. So each one of us has a gateway in which we awaken. And my gateway was working and asking questions and having a quest with Buddha, you know, about this gateway I live in, race, sexuality, and gender, and more. And so it's not just those three, of course, you know. So from the beginning of my Buddhism, I have walked that because that's where that suffering is. That's what I felt was uh, suppressing me and killing me and all these kinds of ways of feeling uh, not alive. And how was I going to live fully? And could Buddha's teachings address this a feeling, you know, and that's what that book is about mostly. The teaching that under the writing is the teachings of the two truths, the relative and the absolute. So everyone wants to live in the absolute. Everyone wants to be non-dual, peaceful, harmonic, uh, whatever. And then so that means people think we ignore the relative uh, condition of our lives. In the book, it's suggesting an exploration of the relative life as the gateway to the absolute. So the race, sexuality, and gender to awakening. That's the absolute. We cannot accomplish the absolute. We can't accomplish it, but we can um, have an experience of it. Right. Very different than accomplishing it or achieving any of these things. You cannot achieve Buddhist teachings. I tell all of my students that they get so sad and... (laughs) You're just not going to achieve this. And there are no certificates. There's nothing to show that you have become accomplished. But there is this way that we can see who and how life is experienced through each other. You know, so you might find, say, a sage, a prophet who they've experienced this absolute. And, um, you know, Ramana talks about it. Ramana Maharshi talks about that. Right. He definitely experienced it. But did he accomplish uh, the teachings, no. And so then, you know, people were alive to be with him and find out, oh, my God. So because the relative is still there, right? <laughs> the of relative course. human being. And which I tell people about even Thich Nhat Hanh, one of the greatest teachers, do not think he is perfect. You know, he was a human being. So I think that we want the perfect life and we want the perfect teacher to help us have a perfect life. So I'm suggesting that we have to go through this life. We have to walk through this wretchedness, in a sense, in order to, you know, be awakened, in order to experience the absolute. Opening to darkness is almost the same message. I just, it's not the two truths, though, as much as looking at um, darkness and blackness without yearning for light. So we yearn for awakening. We yearn for light. But when we think we have it, then that isn't it because you can't really name it. You can't see it. Light is really very dark. And so when dark is here, we know that's when things are being illuminated and it's really being illuminated right now. Boy, oh boy, isn't it? So I think this is very dark. So how precious is that? You know, that it's so dark that we can see everything. (laughs) It's so dark. Yeah, we can see Thank everything, you, you know, yeah. and we have to, we have to see now. The two sort of poles, the two sides, the two polarities, the wretchedness, 
and darkness and then the total light and absolute and all the things that we think we're striving for every day. It's funny how we take our hands in prayer, we put those two things together, we bow, we sit still, quietly, no fanfare, nobody knows about it, and we transform. Mm-hmm. And I think that serves all the people in our lives. Um, I'm really kind of in deep respect and humility for the contribution that you have made to my understanding of that, as small as that understanding may be. Mm. You've had a big voice in it, and I cannot thank you enough. You're welcome. You're welcome for being there for it. (laughs) Yeah. For our listener to find Zenju Earthland Manuel, Osho Zenju Earthland Manuel, um, you can go to Zenju, Z-E-N-J-U dot org. She has a beautiful website with lots of teachings there. Her books are there. And when Opening to Darkness comes out, if I may be so bold as to ask, I would love to be able to read it and maybe welcome you back some months after that, if you'd like. Sure. I would love to. Yeah. I would love to have you back to talk about that. For our listener, thank you for being here. Osho Zenju Earthland, thank you so, so much for everything that you do. I am bowing deeply. Thank you for the invitation. Mm. Speak again soon. Okay. Take care. You too. Thank you, AG1, for sponsoring the Practice You podcast. My listener, you've been hearing me talk about AG1 for some time. I think I've been taking it daily for almost three years. 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food-sourced superfoods, probiotics, and adaptogens in one scoop in the morning. The best way to start your day supports your gut health, your nervous system, your immune system, your energy, recovery, focus, and longevity, the conversation of the moment. The taste is delicious. It's suitable whether you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, or gluten-free. It contains less than one gram of sugar. No nonsense in here at all. It's a multivitamin that your body will actually absorb. If you are wanting to make an investment in your health and longevity, AG1 costs you less than $3 a day, far less expensive, and definitely less time-consuming than many different supplements. Reclaim your health, arm your immune system with convenient, delicious daily nutrition. And since you listen to the Practice You podcast, Athletic Greens is giving you a free one-year supply of immune-boosting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is go to athleticgreens.com forward slash Elena. Once again, that's athleticgreens.com forward slash E-L-E-N-A. Take ownership of your health, my listener. And thank you, Athletic Greens and AG1.